0: The year is 1989. You're sitting in a Nissan prototype race car chasing down a fellow competitor who you haven't been able to pass all day long. With just a few laps remaining in the race, you're plotting each move. Maybe in turn nine. I think I can get him there. Will there be enough room to make the pass though? That's the question. Or will he pull the undercut and pass me right back? I've got to make sure this sticks, so we're going to have to time it just Wait a second, was that the checkered flag? Aren't there three more laps to go? Today on Stagger, we'll talk about what happens when an official gets it wrong, and whether or not the checkered flag is in fact sacred. Turns of blues coming into the front straight. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. Oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before Welcome to Stagger, where we explore motorsports heroes, legends, and myths. I'm J.D. Smith, and along with my brother Derek Smith, we are building a community of people who love motorsports history. So if you like racing, if you like old races on YouTube, if you, this is an episode, by the way, for that, because this entire race is on YouTube, check our Twitter link, at Stagger Podcast, to get the link to watch this race that we're going to talk about today. Um, but one thing we wanted to do, a little housekeeping before we move on into... The episode. A little bit of an announcement here. We want to make sure the podcast stays as good as possible, and we want to make sure we can get the guests that we think really make some of these episodes. Um, as such, we're going to drop our podcast schedule back to a once-every-two-week schedule, so we will now release on a bi-weekly basis for the majority of the year. There will be a few months in the off-season where we hope to be able to do one episode per week because... Well, it's the off season. There aren't a lot of races to watch and you might get bored and want to binge listen to three or four or five podcasts at a time. And, you know, we want to give you that. So in the off season, we'll go back to once a week. But for the next few months, I think we're going to go once every two weeks and see how that goes. Hopefully that means you get some better podcasts out of us and we get some better guests for you. We get some hopefully maybe a little longer podcast, too, because we don't have to rush every week to get it out. But Just want to make sure we're getting you the best content we can. And we've had a lot of our listeners who said they like to stack up these episodes and listen to them two or three or four weeks in a row all at once. So we're going to kind of spread them out a little bit. And that'll give you a chance to kind of build these episodes up and then just, boom, listen to a bunch of them whenever you want. Um, Also, hopefully, if you aren't following us yet, you can. At Stagger Podcast on Twitter, we have a contest going on. Well, depending on when you're listening to this, there's a contest going on where we're giving away some cast. We're going to try to do more of those as well. So if there's something you want to see us give away, um, particular diecast that you've been looking for, let us know. We've got a big collection of them. We're going to be giving some of that stuff away over the next few weeks as well. Follow it all on Twitter and Instagram at Stagger Podcast. All right, on to the show. Derek, what do you think of when I say IMSA in the 1980s? Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> problem <laughs> Well, you know what? That's a, that's a good place to I guess, start. Is that everything in the eighties? Yeah, everything in the eighties was fueled by cocaine. There were like school children lived Churches. on cocaine. Churches ran on right. cocaine, everything because that's all we ever hear in like pop culture about the eighties like it was fueled by oh cocaine. Gosh. Cocaine everywhere. <laughs> Fall from the sky. Cocaine was uh not necessarily a central element to our story. <laughs> um but that's all right, that's a good starting point. Like the eighties were me what I thought about the
1: IMSA in the nineteen eighties. well just, and there like, were the yes mind
0: that we've we've talked about and I'm sure we'll talk about more throughout the series of this podcast yeah there was a lot of drugs in racing uh, especially in the 80s um, but the good news is this story doesn't center around any of that this story actually center around I guess maybe you could say a person who is an official at this race who maybe later we find out is on drugs because they made mm-hmm. a really ridiculous decision here but let's get into the story of what actually happened this race is the G.I. Joe's Camel Grand Prix. I love it. (laughs) A kid's toy right next to a cigarette company in the name of the race. (laughs) It's a
1: kid's toy holding a cigarette. You get the cigarette, you get the Camel Joe version of the
0: G.I. Joe yes that's right he's smoking <laughs> smoking gi joe that's right this is of course when they had joe camel which was the cartoon that then got banned because that was appealing to kids too much so Wait, yes
1: real quick before we move on from this one time jimmy i was and a long time ago i i had credentials to uh rolex uh 24 practice and i asked in a press conference of oh jimmy God. vassar and jimmy johnson they were driving on the same team and i asked them what did jimmy vassar get as a trophy because now they get a Rolex watch if you win the race. Yeah. he's like, man, I don't think we got paid hardly anything. We just got a carton of camels. He's like, it's a lot different than it was back in the, whenever he won. So So that
0: was, that was at a time where it was literally called the IMSA Camel GT. That was what they called this series. (laughs) And this was round 10 of that series. Right. Camel was a big sponsor back then. This was July 30th, 1989 at portland international raceway which is a 1.915 mile track i believe they've slightly extended the track now and put in a little extra kink into the track that makes it slightly longer but at the time it was a 1.915 mile track yes racing kink that's right Mm. that's don't google that one kids that's gonna be bad news (laughs) don't don't put that out there um now (laughs) the length for this race was 97 laps However, it didn't, well, it, it did go to 97 laps, but the winner was decided on lap 94, and more on that coming up. For 11 straight years headed into 1989, the winner of Portland went on to win the season championship in IMSA. Wow. So, I mean, Portland was not the last race of the year, but it was one that pretty much gave you an indication of who was really good. So let's talk about the principal drivers involved in this situation at the Camel GT GI Joe Camel GT in nineteen eighty-nine in Portland. Jeff Brabham, driver of the Nissan Electromotive Engineering GTP ZX Turbo number eighty three. Is that the iconic blue,
1: red, and white Nissan? Yes. That, that is. from the eighties. That Nissan you're talking about? Yes, that is. That was a slick car. It was a great car. Talk about racing kink.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> racing kink oh gosh that's yeah i love it no. that's great hashtag <laughs> racing kink so yeah that one definitely was and the other the other driver involved here was price cobb which that sounds like someone who vacations at nantucket like and <laughs> has a home there or like martha's vineyard i don't know you can't Your if your first name is literally a unit of money i assume you're rich and your last
1: name's Cobb. Price Cobb, yeah. Yes. And he's gotta be from like Augusta,
0: Georgia. I don't you know think he mean? is I think he's from Colorado, actually, now that Price you say that. Cobb. I I didn't do a ton of research on like see, his background, but I do believe I saw that he was from Colorado. See, this is the
1: great thing about this podcast is we could literally just be like, Oh, we should do a podcast on Bryce Cobb.
0: Hey, we should do a podcast on Brabham. And by the way, Price Cobb was driving the Tom Wilkinshaw Racing Jaguar xjr 10 wait 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 wait, okay let me memory
1: serves me correct this is the red white and green castro oh,
0: car let me tell you what man oh man the castro livery on a race car i don't like john force had it right uh, castro gtx on the on the the my, funny cars he used to run raised a little bit <laughs> that red white and green paint scheme is one of my favorite like castro to this day like that brand of oil was served so well by being in motorsports yeah. just because them and valvoline right like yeah. valvoline
1: makes sense
0: right? they, they just had such great cars and great drivers many times in those cars but yeah if you've not seen the xjr 10 jaguar go look it up because it's a really cool car except for one annoying feature and that is they had these it's a jaguar no no <laughs> It's that they had these awful wheel wheel covers on the back of the oh, wheels, which was a thing man, like they disgusting. were doing for like aero purposes at the time and ground effects and all that stuff. And I'm sure it worked, but it, oh, uh, I just think they look so ugly. There are pictures of these cars without the wheel covers and they look so much better without the wheel covers than with, oh, but anyway, it looks and everything. Of course, it's how fast you go around the track and well, it's, this it's was a pretty quick the, car.
1: It's at least worth a good 10th. Just to look good, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you any any driver will tell you that, look it, good, play good, yeah, right, exactly. Look good,
0: feel good, play good. If that's you have what a they bad always say.
1: Uniform, it's worth a couple points off the board in basketball or maybe a run in baseball. It's the same thing applies in, in racing. If you got a good livery on your car, it's worth a tenth or two. I think so.
0: Let's talk about these two drivers. Then we'll talk about the cars. Jeff Brabham was inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2004. Son of legendary F1 driver slash car builder slash. Uh, well, he's a Sir, he's knighted. Jack Brabham. Mm. If you've ever heard of uh Brabham F one cars, yeah. that's who they're named after. Huh. That's Jack Brabham. So um the guy who at one point ran Brabham and owned that team was a guy named Bernie Ecclestone. So just No. Yeah, that's what he did before Good he became the, the main guy in well, and while he was the main guy in F one in the late seventies, yeah, but Brabham was a make of car. It was it was it's just like McLaren. Right? That's also named after a famous driver. He was involved with it. That's Jack Brabham. So Jeff Brabham is Jack Brabham, Sir Jack Brabham's son. Jack Brabham, Sir Jack Brabham, won three F1 titles. That's how, you know, again, legendary driver. So Jeff is his son. Jeff was most successful in IMSA, where he won the season championship in four consecutive seasons. He also made a ton of starts in CART, So he was an IndyCar driver. He had 10 Indy 500 races that he entered. He also won the Bathurst 1000 in the Australian Sports Cars Championship there. So he's a fantastic driver he comes from a fantastic line of drivers matt brabham is his son Mm -hmm. who ran the indy 500 a few years and also i believe now does the robbie gordon super truck deal yeah yeah yeah, matt brabham does that's right so that's that's jeff brabham's son so racing family now they're all they're australian but still sir brabham because the kingdom right so anyway yeah but Mm. sir jack brabham but they are actually from australia that's their their home base i guess so jeff brabham As you would expect when you come from like a famous racing family and you've got a lot of talent and you're not necessarily questioning everything in your life at all times, he was pretty sure of himself and was also pretty good Mm -hmm. at being a cut up and making people laugh. So I'll give you a story that I found in my research. Earlier in 1989, before this Portland race, they were at Watkins Glen and they were having a practice. Jeff Brabham and his teammate, Chip Robinson, they went off in two different nissans because they had two of these cars they took them both out they leave pit road they speed off towards turn one and then the crew loses sight of them 10 20 seconds later brabham comes on the radio and says chip spun me and like they're like <laughs> what and then R- chip robinson gets on the radio almost instantly and says oh jeff's gone off in front of me i misjudged the corner i'm in the fence and so the team is like <laughs> both of our guys just wrecked each other out of the first couple goes in practice like didn't even get through a full lap and so for a minute they're like pissed off and wandering around and thinking what are we going to do and then they see two bright blue white and red nissans just streaking <laughs> down the front stretch none <laughs> of that actually happened but it gave them like a minute of being panicked it, so
1: it, and that just shows you too there was a time in racing where we did not have telemetry we don't have the cameras we don't have the pit box you know no, or, the, or no. the paddock wagons whatever they call them an f1 you don't have the board of screens to look at your car and track it throughout the entire race. I I'm mean, I'm, I mean, it's it's crazy to think because right now on, on our phones, we can get any of the F and the F1 app, the IndyCar app, get telemetry from telemetry about any, any track in the world. You can find yeah.
0: like there's there's apps for, you know, you can find a. Dirt track in Alaska, if there is one, and, and get telemetry from Yeah, you could watch it or it certainly get the telemetry at least to know if a car is still well, running or not.
1: Yeah, or yeah, not even maybe at least the t- live timing and score. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. what I mean. Like yes, that's what I meant
0: live timing, right? You could yeah, at least see like this track, this car is still on the track, right? That's Jeff Brabham, an incredible driver, funny, quick witted, all the above. So, you know, he was a star in IMSA in the late 80s, no doubt about it, and one of the best drivers there. Price Cobb, he was a great driver as well. He's most known for two things. He won this little race in a French village called Lemos, uh, in 1990. You said it right. <laughs> I occasionally, we'll give you the right pronunciation. He won that in a Jaguar, which I can't say Jaguar. It, I, I did say it earlier in this podcast. I'll probably say it again. It's a but Jag. Just play it safe. I, that's what most of what my notes are is in the Jag. Because Jaguar sounds like something you say when sounds like a you've never condition. heard of the car but like a jaguar i can't i don't talk like that regularly so i would never say like jaguar xkr 10 but it does sound much better when you say it that way <laughs> and uh i'm sure tom Walkinshaw, who prepared these cars was probably someone who said jaguar he was a scottish racing legend he also owned the imsa car that price cobb drove price cobb at this point had not won them Mans, but he was going to win it the next year in a Jaguar, very similar to the one he was driving in this race. He also is known, Price Cobb eventually, was known for being one of the winningest drivers in the Porsche Cup uh, as well. He now coaches young drivers and helps them when they're trying to get up the ladder from one discipline to the next. He kind of runs them through, tells them what they're doing wrong, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, very cool. These two guys are both excellent drivers. That's the the two that we are dealing with in this race. Now, the cars, I talked earlier about the Nissan GTP ZX Turbo. It was on its way in 1989 to winning 10 of the 15 races in the GT prototype class in wow. IMSA. Pretty dominant car. Just to give you a little mindset for Nissan back in 1989, they had tabbed electromotive engineering to build a sports car and race it in IMSA. There were two primary goals for Nissan with this. Number one was they wanted to establish the name Nissan in America. Because in the late 70s, early 80s, these cars were known as Datsuns. That's what they were known as here. They were not known as Nissans. Hmm. They changed the name and people were calling it Datsun Nissan or Nissan Datsun. And so they were just, let's just get rid of Datsun. We want to be known as Nissan. So if you look at these cars, as you pointed out, what were the colors of this Nissan? It was red, white, and blue. Yeah. Is there any reason why they might have done that particularly? I'm sure that was just (laughs) somewhat motivated, at least a little bit, by the fact that you're trying to show people, hey, we're an American... if this we're happens. a brand that you can buy in America. And at that time, people were a lot more concerned about like, I want an American car. They also had a factory in the U.S. Yeah. at this point. So they had opened a U.S. factory. They were trying to establish themselves as like, hey, we belong here. We're part of this racing scene. If you like fast cars and sports cars and all that, well, Nissan is a performance brand.
1: It, well, it's kind of like if you live in the Midwest, Toyota and Honda, you know that Toyotas are made in Kentucky and yep. you know that Hondas are made in Indianap- or Indiana and Ohio. Yep, And yep. those are pretty much
0: 90% American cars with some parts from Japan. And I'm pretty sure Nissan either has a, I think theirs is in Tennessee
1: yeah. where they opened their plant, but I mean, it was, yeah, it was pretty it was, much everyone. I mean, BMW has a Jersey or South Carolina plant.
0: Right? They have a South Carolina South plant.
1: plant. Yep. So like a lot of these manufacturers are realizing, Hey, we're going to sell cars here. It makes sense to not crate them over yep. on shipping containers. Uh, let's just go ahead and make them here. And it,
0: and it was it was partially too because there were some laws put in place that said like if you import the cars, it costs way more money. Yeah. So then they were like, well, cool. We, we don't American import them Cars in the eighties were <clears throat> so terrible that yes. they're like,
1: oh, you can't you can't do that.
0: You can't sell a car that's better than mine. Nissan was definitely trying to show themselves though as like we're a performance brand that is cool to drive and you want to drive this car because it's it's awesome that was definitely a thing by the way if you ever look at getting like a nissan 300zx that was the that was kind of the car believe it or not that the prototype had a little tie to because the nissan 300zx had a vg30 et engine in it that is the same engine they used in the prototype they, Whoa. they use the same. So think of it right. That's a great selling point <laughs> of, hey, buy a Nissan. You like that cool car you saw at the racetrack yeah. at Portland? Well, you can go to a Nissan dealer in Oregon mm-hmm. and buy the same engine. Now, the engine in a regular Nissan 300ZX got about 160 horsepower, naturally aspirated. Uh, the single turbo engine that they had in this car in the race car that jeff brabham was driving generated north of 700 horsepower so they were the same engine it wasn't like they said oh this is the same engine and just used a piece of metal from the engine like good enough like it's based on the same engine you could technically i guess get a 300zx motor and if you knew what you were doing and knew how to properly engineer these things you could bore out the cylinders and get different pistons and change the camshaft and do all that stuff and tune it properly with electrical you know timing and all that you could probably figure out a way to get way more horsepower out of those engines but again these are race engineers <laughs> it was a design from the ground up right and they just wanted to make sure they based it off that engine so anyway i think it's a pretty neat deal and yeah it kind of makes you want to get a nissan 300zx because they're not they're not going to perform anything like this prototype did but still kind of a cool looking car clip on it Oh, it's a total 80s car, Nissan 300ZX. A lot of people know them from the 90s where they got smoothed down and they look yeah. really like streamlined. Yeah. I'm talking about the ones from the 80s that still looked like a Datsun 240Z. That era of car, it, I love. I think they look awesome. So Nissan had come really close to winning IMSA's Constructors Championship in 1988. They skipped the Rolex 24 and the Sebring 12-hour race at the start of the season because the car wasn't quite ready. And they still only lost to Porsche by one point, Jeez. so that was the other thing Nissan was trying to do at this time. With sandbag? No, they were trying. They were trying to show up the Porsche 962s. Porsche oh, 962s gotcha. were like the class of most of the sports car world in Europe, in the U.S. They were in, in Porsche 962s. You may say, I don't know what a Porsche 962 is. You've seen a Porsche 962 if you've ever looked at any old mm. footage of Le Mans. If you've ever watched the Rolex 24 footage from like the 80s at all you saw Porsche 962 they were the one of the best cars ever built so that's what Nissan was trying to do was say hey that Porsche 962 we beat it at the track and you can get that same engine in your street car nice pretty genius deal if you can do that Jeff Brabham won the driver's championship in 1988 so that's how good they were he as a driver amassed the most points even though the car because different people drove these cars from time to time the car itself did not get enough points to win the constructors championship but Mm he still won the drivers championship so they were really good in 1988 so why do i give you all that background well 1989 this car is now fully shaken down they've got all the problems worked out of it now that they've got the problems sorted this car was just bad fast in 1989 i will spoil this for you they won the championship in 1989 so they were they were already the clear-cut favorites of the field they won 10 out of 15 races they were great but in portland they couldn't quite get around the jag the jag was actually the better car that afternoon at this time jag was on a different level than the nissan team in imsa the xjr9 chassis had just won the world championship and the 24 hours of Le Mans in 1988 so you would think well that's got to be great for jag right the xjr9 was fantastic at that time it was beating the porsche 962s in fact that nissan was also trying to beat tom walkinshaw the guy i told you about ran this team for Jaguar. He ran these cars in Le Mans, he ran them at Daytona, he ran them anywhere there were sports cars. He was the guy for Jag. That was who they hired to build this car. But that car in 1988 was based on a V12 naturally aspirated engine and Walkinshaw realized there was a problem. Problem was engines were getting smaller. Mm-hmm. When the engines smaller, Derek does that do to you like your center of gravity for your car the weight distribution in the car Mm, messes it up it messes it up but it also allows you to put weight in other places that make your car handle better so if you got a big giant v12 sitting right behind the driver yeah that's going to put a lot of mass just right in the center of the car right which is fine but when you have minimum weight requirements and everyone's trying to be right at that minimum if you've got 300 pounds of your engine that you can shave off because you go to a smaller engine, that's gonna allow you to put 300 pounds at different places of the car to make it handle better. Absolutely. So the movement in all sports car racing at the time was to go to smaller engines with big turbos that spooled up and let these cars get ridiculous horsepower. Jaguar decided to go from a V12 to a six cylinder engine, a three liter engine with twin turbos because that's a lot lighter, saved Mm -hmm. a few hundred pounds but they thought that could be just as powerful and just as badass as the V12. So that engine, believe it or not, in this race, there were two Jags entered in the race. One of them was an XJR9 that had the V12. One of them was an XJR10 that had the three-liter or the, the 3 six-cylinder. That three-liter six-cylinder was the one that Price Cobb was driving, and that is the one that actually got on the pole that Jag really? outqualified the Nissan which is weird because all throughout the year it really hadn't been doing better than the Nissan but in this one race it just was slightly better. Nissan had taken 7 out of 9 poles in 1989 at that time but like I said the Jag got the pole Jan Lammers was actually the driver for that car. He was he and Price Cobb were the teammates who drove that car. The cars can reach speeds of 180 miles per hour at the time on this track on the straightaway. Mm-hmm. Turns were not the widest you're ever going to see at Portland, they're pretty narrow. Qualifying was a huge deal because there are not a lot of great passing points here. And getting off the final turn before the straightaway was extremely important. You had to basically either qualify well or be able to get off the final turn and get onto the straightaway, get the power down quick. The weird thing is the Jag, according to everyone who was there, shouldn't have been on the pole. The Jag, it? according to everyone with a stopwatch and every engineer and everyone who was watching this at the start finish line... They timed the Nissan as getting around the track quicker, start finish line to start finish line. But on the qualifying lap, they don't take the time at the start finish line. They take the time at the end of turn nine. As you're getting what? off that last corner, that was the last timing oh, block. Time, yeah. So the Nissan, once it got off the corner, apparently would pick up a little bit on the straightaway mm. in qualifying over the jag and so at the line people were like well that was quicker but where they did the official timing and scoring was actually up the track a little bit further and for whatever reason the jag probably because they got more of the straightaway speed from the previous lap Mm -hmm. so it turned out that Jan Lammers got this car on the pole Price Cobb was the other driver and he was the one who was in this car at the end of the race when all the drama kind of happened but We'll get to that. Brabham was second in the Nissan. So Jag Nissan one two in this race. Initially, Brabham falls pretty far behind the Jag of Cobb and Lammers by as many as four seconds. But soon the Nissan was back in good stead running just behind the Jag. Part of that was the electromotive team, the Nissan team. They had one of the best pit crews in IMSA history. Um, really? There was yes, there was a story earlier in the season where at one race, the electromotive team's pit crew was getting their cars out of the pits 15 seconds quicker than any other competitor. What? Right? That's a ridiculous advance. Like a it's- second or two at a pit stop is insane right now. Yeah. So they were one of the first pit crews in IMSA that were really good at just get in get this stuff off, get it back on, get them back out on the track. They
1: probably may have a system and a process. And It's interesting because IMSA is not really known for its lightning-fast pit stops. If you watch the Rolex 24 or any IMSA race, the car comes to a stop. There's tires set out. There might be one guy that's out, but if not, everybody kind of comes out there. And they set up, they take the tires off, and there's a cameraman that walks around the car from the front to the back, back to the front, back to the driver's side, and it peels out and tries to hit him. you know, that's as, yeah. as yeah. the joke goes. But it's it's not anything like, you know, an F1 stop or even a NASCAR stop or IndyCar stop. NASCAR and IndyCar, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, depending on what's going on there. So just the fact that they made 15 seconds up shows you how far pit stops have come, but also that they were the first team in IMSA to really make a focus on, you can do all these stuff you want to on the car, get a better driver, you got all this time in pit road that you're losing because you're not fast enough changing yeah. tires. And I think the That'd pit fuel. stops
0: were a little different at the time for like endurance races versus sprint races. This was, you know, right, a slightly shorter race. They didn't. I don't know how much they were putting fuel in the cars. I mean, they were, but it was not the same thing. And IMSA now purposefully limits the amount of fuel that goes in at a time. They were. Rest- they don't have the like fast filling fuel tanks on purpose, right? Because they don't want pit stops to necessarily be as competitive as they were at this time right for safety purposes they don't want fuel getting spilled they don't want people yeah yeah. you gotta remember too in the 80s cocaine a lot of fires (laughs) yeah a lot of people not paying attention yeah there were there were a lot of fires there was a lot of cocaine i'm sure but also there was like stories of guys getting penalized because they just chose to come down pit road at a hundred miles an hour and then zip into their pits and then leave because the time penalty one is wasn't as bad as if you just went pit road speed. So like <laughs> they still weren't quite there as far as fully getting how to make pit road safe. They've done that now, right? But at the time it was still kind of the wild west. So anyway, Nissan was really good. This electromotive team really good at getting their guys in and out quickly. Also, as good as the Nissan was on the track. They, they think they could have been better against Cobb and Lammers in the Jag at Portland because Nissan's engineers and mechanics at the time believed they were running about two seconds per lap slower than they were capable of because they were stuck behind this Jag. They could not get out in front of the Jag. For whatever reason, they kept being kind of stuck behind it. So this entire race, if you want to watch it, is on YouTube. We'll post a link on our Twitter at Stagger Podcast. The guys who were uh, calling this race for ESPN Speed Vision, if you remember that oh, lovely yeah. product. I love uh, it. That was Bob Varsha and Doc Bundy on the call for this race. So it's cool to be able to watch a, you know, a lot of these historical things we talk about. You can't actually see the races. This is one of the ones you can. 1989 yeah. Portland, IMSA. Just go Google that on, put that in YouTube, put that on Google. You'll find this race. You can go watch it. It's about two hours long during the race you had a classic ingredient for a great race the nissan was the better car in the corners it would get right up to the jaguar it would be right on its tail and then the jag would just put the power down slightly better than the nissan and scoot away on the straightaways which is going to come into play here because on lap 88 jeff brabham who had been this entire time trying to get past the jag Now Price Cobb is in this car. Jan Lammers had driven it for a while. Price Cobb's back in the Jag. Mm -hmm. Brabham gets to his bumper, gets to turn nine, the last turn before the big straightaway. Right. Tried to move Cobb out of the way. Brabham kind of sideswipes Cobb's car. They both spin out into the grass. Now they've got such a lead, no one else comes and passes them. But they both keep their cars going. No one gets stuck. Cobb gets out of the grass first. And Brabham is still behind him. And you got to figure at that point, this is 88 laps into this race. It was scheduled to go 97. He's probably thinking, like, I've got to make a move. I've got to do something because I can't get this guy on the straightaways. I've got to get out in front of him in the corners. And, yeah, yeah, slide job. Got to do it. Got to do it. It's go time. So that did not work on lap 88. So was that his last gasp? No, it was not for Jeff Brabham, but more on that in a second. On lap 94, this is the part of the race where everything kind of turned the race upside down. Price Cobb is still in the lead in the Jag. Jeff Brabham hot on his tail. For unknown reasons, David Long was the official start of that day. I didn't find a lot of background information on David Long. And if he decided to go into witness protection after this, I can't blame him because <laughs> he maybe just felt so bad about what happened. But he just waves the checkered flags. The lap that it was supposed to go to was lap 97 now i went and watched this because again this this is on tv mm. i watched this to see can we see you know the checkered flags because they don't always show you right. the race they don't zoom out all the time especially if they're not thinking that there's going to be a checkered flag randomly right. they're, they're not they're showing all they that might, they might
1: be zoomed in on the car and not really zoomed
0: in on yeah the, they're, on the they're zoomed they're in on the action on the track on the,
1: perspective of the track
0: so here's what's really interesting to me i'm watching this race on youtube as they come down on lap 94 there is a flag man and he's going wild like Mm -hmm. doing the flags the way you would you know two checkered flags bending down waving (laughs) them, all this stuff and on the broadcast bob varsha and doc bundy don't even mention it like they don't even say, oh, there, there's no, I imagine now if you're watching like an IMSA race or a NASCAR race or an IndyCar race of any kind, where number one, I'm pretty sure that was lap 94 because I saw the guy waving flags like crazy. It's such low grain and hard to see. I couldn't even tell if they were checkered flags, but right. the way he was waving them is the way that people wave checkered flags when they're, you know, the end of the race. They didn't mention it on the broadcast. Also, there's not like a lap number up on the screen where they have like the rundown like they do now where they have a graphic up all the time that tells you everybody. They didn't have any of that up there. So I assume that was lap 94. That's the only instance I could see that even looked close to the idea that someone was waving a checkered flag. If you watch the two cars, they don't even react. They're both just flying down the straightaway. They keep going. IMSA very quickly, to their credit, realized what was going on. And they radioed to the teams and said, ignore that checkered flag. We don't know why that guy's doing that. That's not the end of the race. You need to keep racing. So instantaneously, Brabham in the Nissan, Cobb in the Jag. They stayed in the same spots, one and two. Cobb did not like let off the gas and like, yay, I won. And then Brabham passed him. This, that did not happen. They were about as close before this as they were after. I didn't see anything where, like, there was a noticeable lift or any noises that seemed to indicate that. And again, we're watching on a TV broadcast. Maybe if you were there, you would have seen something. But from what I could see, they were focused on these cars as that lap appeared to happen. Nothing really changed. So it didn't affect the race in that way. But there was definitely a checkered flag on lap 94. Imsa clarified all this, got the teams to keep going, said you've still got three more laps to race. They did. And and he only did this for a few seconds. Did uh David Long the starter, mm-hmm. and then they he pulled him back down. He was told you don't do that and they they fixed it. In the background of the TV broadcast, if you go and check it out, there is it sounds very faint, way off in the background, but it does sound like you can hear someone going, oh, what are you doing?" Like you can hear almost like someone saying like, "What what was that? What was he doing? Kind of like me when I don't have the mic up to my mouth. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. That's what it sounded like. But you don't hear Bob Varsha say anything about it. You don't hear Doc Bundy say anything about it. Now, it could be they didn't catch it. It could be they just knew this guy was wrong and stupid. But it. it I don't know what Wait. the reason was they didn't mention it on TV. This is a joke that only the nerds are going to get. But was Paul Page in the background saying, Weldon, Weldon. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. That's What's right. That was just a guy, wasn't it? Paul Page. Yeah, it, it does help if the broadcasters on the call are actually paying attention to the race, but <laughs> another story for another day. We got to do that one on Dan Weldon's 500.
1: That's that's going to be a great
0: one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that oh. Yeah. What a, yeah, let's call J.R. Hildebrand and say, "Come on down." Yeah, I think. Talk gonna, about gonna, it. Mean, we could talk about Pikes Peak and that. I, w- I mean, it wouldn't be. Great. I'd rather talk to him about Pikes Peak than <laughs> about the time he almost won the Indy 500 <laughs> except for the talk final about corner paint
1: drying. Then, yeah, then Turn Four at Indianapolis.
0: Yeah, but, true yeah, enough. Cool. So neither Cobb nor Brabham seemed to gain an advantage. They stayed one-two like they had been the whole time. Then on lap ninety-six, one lap before the scheduled end of the race, Jeff Brabham makes his move in the Nissan on Price Cobb in this Jag that Nissan could not get past all day long. They are at the all-important turn 9-12 of the track, the last one before the straightaway. This is on the next-to-last lap. And Brabham in the Nissan comes up and bumps Cobb and just does it perfectly this time. Mm. Doesn't sideswipe, doesn't knock both of them out, just lifts his right rear wheel off just ever so slightly off the ground gets him just a little bit squirrely and then zips right underneath of him they hit the straightaway Brabham puts the power down the Nissan and flies away so on the last lap he makes a brilliant pass next to last lap yeah. brilliant pass holds on for the final lap and looks like he's going to be like gone yeah. for like two seconds I mean he just pulls away like the, Nis- like the Nissan You know, engineers thought he would this whole time and he goes on to win the race he is called as the winner on tv they make no mention of the fact that there's nothing like oh well the checkered flags came out a few laps ago but i guess we're still going tonight there's nothing like that they just (laughs) there you go jeff brabham with a brilliant move wins the race pulls into pit road gets out of the car they interview jeff brabham and he's got you know this great aussie accent And he says, I just had to move him out of the way. It was time to win the race. That's how he termed his move like he did. That's not a flag. (laughs) Now that's a flag. Right, exactly. Yes. (laughs) So he he at this point is like, I won this race. I made the great move at the end. We survived a little off that we had where both of us ran into each other. But I, in the last lap, proved that I was the best driver in the best car. And I got the job done. And who can blame him for thinking that for Cobb and for Jag? They had to feel like, okay, we. We lost this race. That sucks. And Brabham's car was the better car probably for the entire day. But the Jag just had the track position and it was a tough place to pass. If Brabham was out in front in this race, Derek, I truly believe he would have won it by 10 seconds or more. I mean, he would have been gone. Yeah, it lights out. But okay. he just couldn't get around the Jag and because of that qualifying thing. The Jag was first. He was second. And that's how the race went. We'll take a break. When we come back, the fallout from the errant checkered flag. You're listening to Stagger. Welcome back to Stagger. They do the post-race interview, the broadcast signs off, that's it. Jeff Brabham's your winner. And of course we know what that means at Portland now, 11 of the last races, the winner at Portland goes on to win the championship. And that seemed right because Nissan was dominating this whole year, except Jaguar actually is credited with winning the race because IMSA decides retroactively, after the race is all done and everybody's gone home that night, They look back on what happened and they say, well, lap 94, that's when the checkered flag waved. And this is auto racing. The checkered flag is sacred, according to IMSA. They say once the checkered flag comes out, that's the end of the race. We can't go changing the rules and changing what happened. But we can change the result. We can change the result after (laughs) the fact, apparently. So they said, look, because the checkered flag waved, we cannot know if that affected anything with Price Cobb or with this car or with anything else. And, and of course, Jaguar, after the fact, said, oh, yeah, if it hadn't been for that checkered flag, you know, we lifted a little bit and he caught up to us. And that was part of, you know, after the fact, yeah. of course, they're all going to say, like, yes, this greatly affected our race. But it technically watching it from every angle that I saw. There's nothing you could say there. It wasn't like Brabham just like pulled out, instantly went past him, and then they were like, Wait, what? No. Hmm. Like this was multiple laps of Price Cobb and the Jag still out in the lead, and then Brabham gets him in the final turn of the next to last lap. So this was not there, there were there was five minutes in between when that actually occurred and the actual pass that changed that that ended the race, more or less. Think about it from Brabham's perspective though. He thinks the race is going to 97 laps. What does he do on lap 96? Bumps the guy out of the way, makes the pass. If the lap, if the race is going to lap 94, don't you think he's going to make that pass or attempt it on lap 93? I mean, isn't that how this typically works, right? So. Right. If you're changing the distance of the race, it changes your strategy. It changes everything you're Absolutely. doing. I don't know if they had
1: all this technology back then, but usually you can change the fuel loads to run a richer load, so you're burning more fuel to get more power. You're having you know different dials on your steering wheel if they had that technology back then. I
0: don't think they had as much of that back then, but you're, but you're, but, yeah, you're I mean, right, you that, run the race differently. To,
1: if that happened today, it would be one of the biggest controversies of recent times because you plan out, and look at IndyCar, for example, you have push to pass you're saving your push to pass for the last few laps yeah. so if they if they shut off three laps early and they call it the race you would have been using you have been on the button back on lap 89 yes. 90 right and not 93 94 95 96 well 97. that's exactly right
0: but they decided did IMSA okay this is it the the checkered flag matters we're going to give the checkered flag and when that happens the race is over even if it was a mistake Nissan of course was pissed because yeah. they're like, we won that race. The electromotive engineering team, they were mad and they said, this was our race. We should have had it. It's BS that you're taking this away after the fact. The LA Times, I have a report from them from August 2nd of 1989. Remember, this race was on July 30th. So took a few days. August 2nd, that's when the ruling came down that Price Cobb won the race. Spokesman for IMS, his name was Adam Saul, said while the starter could give no reason for doing it and it was definitely erroneous it still was a checkered flag Cobb said he backed off slightly after he saw the flag then started racing again Jeff Brabham took the lead from Cobb of course on lap 96 like we discussed Cobb is saying after the fact in the Jag yeah I let off a little bit but come on if you watch it there's no way he did no IMSA held the results as provisional until the appeal could be heard because Nissan of course appealed this electromotive appealed this. Former driver John Gordon Bennett, who was IMSA's commissioner, was going to have the final say. Had an appeals hearing. They spoke. Nissan did explain their side. The Jaguar people explained their side. Bennett decided to get other people involved. Even though it was his final call, he said, well, if whatever I decide is probably going to be unpopular with somebody, I'm going to get three other experts and bring them in And then we're all going to hear this and then we're all going to make this decision together. Right. The panel concluded after hearing all this and weighing all the options, they said, although it was incorrectly displayed, the checkered flag had to be honored. You have to take the checkered flag when it comes out and say, well, that's the race. So I guess their argument theoretically would have been. Now, I, I struggle to believe this. Right. But their argument theoretically could have been if on lap 35 of a 97-lap race, the guy accidentally waves a checkered flag, well, then that's the end of the race. Like, yeah. I don't know that they would have done that in, in practice, but three laps before the race, maybe that makes it different because it's that close to the end as yeah. opposed to halfway through the race or something. But although this was the commissioner of IMSA, John Gordon Bennett, and his mm. commission, that group chastised IMSA leadership, which mm. he was a part of but said, this cannot ever happen again. It's ridiculous that you don't have a system in place to prevent this from happening. You need to make changes. So IMSA did, this was the start. Now you go to an IMSA race, just like any other series, they're gonna bring someone with them from IMSA and that person is in charge of all the flags. They flag the race as the official starter. That is someone who is a part of the IMSA group, not someone who just works in Portland. Not a
1: track worker. Yes. Yep.
0: Right. So this was this was not going to be an amateur or someone who does that part time or whatever you want to call that. This is going to all be the same person at every racetrack. They're going to know mm-hmm. the procedure. They're going to have a system. And that's what they did. So Nissan did protest a little bit more, but ultimately decided, whatever, there's nothing we can do. They accepted the decision with one little caveat. At the next race in San Antonio, Nissan handed out a wonderfully designed lapel pin showing the number 83 car, the one that was the winner on the day, (laughs) showed the number 83 car, a checkered flag, and the words Portland 1989. Nice. I want one of those pins so badly because that just knowing that they got a pin made instantly to be like, yeah, you know, we won. Screw you and your stupid trophy. We have a pin. Also, yeah. I, feel, I forgot to mention, there was one other aspect of that pin. There was a large screw going directly through the car on the <laughs> pin. So they were letting everyone know, hey, not only do we win this race, we got screwed, and I think that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so great. That's the, uh, that's the end of this saga, I guess. I have a couple questions for you at the end of this yeah. deal. Do you think IMSA made the right call?
1: No, I don't think it's the right call. I think it should have gone to 97 laps because it was not – this is an IMSA race and IMSA had the, the race scheduled for 97 laps. This race was offici- was unofficially shortened by a rogue flag waver, yes. a, a, a local track worker who was not in tune or missed the call. They might have said three to go and he thought it said one to go and he waved the flag too early or something like that. And it was a mistake, but to me, this is a mistake that the governing body is there to say, whoa, 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 keep going to 97. And then the sanctity of the flag, it should be the sanctity of the race, and the and the sanctity of the call of the governing body. Well, if you're a governing body, exactly right, you have to govern, and it doesn't matter. I mean, you could wave a you know a checkered flag could be in someone's uh, kitty or some some bag on a corner, and if a guy waves a corner checkered flag and whoops, I meant to wave the 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 white flag, which in which in road racing and IMSA means like. It, there, there, it's a different meaning for a white flag in road racing than it is for it doesn't mean the last lap or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. He grabs the wrong flag whoops the checkered flag. Oh my gosh big mistake. It gets caught on camera Some guys like wait hold on a second lap five. I saw a checkered flag Okay, and so does that mean that out of turn five this car that took it first gets a checkered flag? No, no, of course not So in this instance to me, this is nothing more than a mistake by a local track worker You you fix that after the race by making sure that track worker stays in the corner or is terminated or whatever doesn't come back and you say we still have a 97 lap race there's no no darkness no other delay that would tell us we could not finish this race and you have radio communications you're not sitting there with chalkboard in the 50s you can tell all the hey hey guys they hopped on say nope 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 that's not the right flag and then you go back after the race and say actually it was to me it's like i'd want to know who is who who is are they trying to keep jaguar in the sport were they trying to Attracted new driver, maybe an F one driver that drove a Jaguar.
0: I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's it, as it, it complex is as things. that. I think they looked at it simply as. Oh, it's conspiracy, man. <laughs> it's yeah, a racing conspiracy. A, that's. Is it a racing kink? Do we know if it's that? It's not a okay.
1: kink. It's a racing conspiracy. What if it was both? What if it was a conspiracy? What and if a the kink? T- What if the move happened in the kink? Then it would be a racing kink conspiracy.
0: A kink in the kink. Now we've broken the matrix. Thank you. I think you're right that you've got all the modern technology and they could look at the situation and go it nothing really changed if think about the two arguments being presented here twr racing price Cobb, jaguar team they're saying you threw the checkered flag we were in the lead we should get to stay in the lead because we took the checkered flag first end of discussion nissan is saying and the electromotive team they're saying yeah jeff brabham couldn't get by your guy until the final lap where he did because that's when he goes to make his pass he tried every other way to do it couldn't get around him and eventually said all right last resort time i'm gonna see if i can bump this guy he executed it beautifully on the next to last lap made the type of move you're supposed to to win a race that's why he should win because we said it was going to 97 laps. We told you in the race after the checkered flag, ignore that, race to 97 laps. It There's no way Jaguar's position is logical. Their position is, we didn't win the race, but we should have, so give it to us, meh. <laughs> Nissan in Electromotive's position was, we did what we were supposed to based on everything we were told to win the race, and now after the fact, you're just retroactively picking a date and saying oh actually whoever was in the lead there they win it's it's like having the world series and then being like well actually in september uh the braves were in first place so they win like that no that's not can you imagine that like that would be ridiculous that's what happened in portland and it's bs and i'm still mad about it because i love that nissan and i think jeff bravin is an amazing driver and uh price Cobb is too but that should have been nissan's race and i don't know why i'm still mad about it but i am (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're on the same page on something. Of course we are. Of course we are. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you this, this final question here. And I guess it's that, do you think they would make that decision now?
1: I don't think they'd make that decision now. I think they would have kept it as is because of the scoring, the timing, the telemetry, telemetry, they would say, whoa, 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 we've got someone waving a flag. Our double check it. Nope. We're still good. We got three laps to go. Drivers ignore that. They'd, They'd come on the radio, talk to the spotters, talk to the crew, everyone. They would make sure that that's the case. And if if you're asking me if the checkered flag is sacred of the go bowling at the Glen, 200 or the let me see another one the um, Fire Keepers Casino 400, right? Um, No, those are
0: NASCAR races. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, But I would say I'm just pulling some race names out there. We're selling the names of the races, and it's not even to like prestigious brands like Rolex or whatever. So it's like, okay, if that's what we're doing, then you know, I, I, I would say follow the rules of the race the races unless it's been rain shortened unless it's been you know a darkness delay because they don't put lights in the track if that's the case i could see that but other than that no it's, well the
0: the you're right that term sanctity of the checkered flag it's like what is sacred in racing anymore i mean you're right you can literally sponsor anything you want in, in 30 in years racing.
1: yeah in 30 years yeah yeah like literally viagra was on a car for two years which is fine
0: car. but it's you're right like the the sacredness of some of these races that have ridiculous names and have sponsors attached to everything nothing's sacred so run the damn race run the race run to the distance the you racers, said you're
1: going to go to the racers group was an actual entity so racing organization sac, sac, sanctity of racing is it, it is it's an interesting cast of characters we all like to go fast we all like to drive and see cars that go fast we've talked about this before about racing's a big family so it brings a lot of people together from various backgrounds and one thing that unites us is the fact that a checkered flag does fall on the race but it comes down when it's supposed to. If someone tapped you on the shoulder uh, if you're uh, you know walking down the sidewalk busy sidewalk and a guy taps you on the shoulder you turn around and they're proposing to you on their knee and They're and like oh my gosh you dressed just like my fiance to be who was over there sorry if you would have said yes, that's not a you're not engaged.
0: You just met the guy. That's what happened here at this right, instance. It, it is, he was like, yeah. oh my
1: gosh, you had the same tan
0: Pico. on wanna, that we we got the other. Up, we don't want to upset bad. the sacredness of the right. ceremony of a proposal. It's like, right. yeah, but it was not. It was the wrong. It was, it was the wrong person. It was a mistake. <laughs> it was not. And, and by the way, it doesn't mean Price Cobb was the wrong person to win that race. It just means at the time they hadn't finished the race. Right. You got to get to lap you 97. Gotta, you got to finish it. Yeah. Screw IMSA, it was a dumb decision, I love IMSA, and, I, and by the way... That was the old IMSA too. Yeah, that was the old IMSA, but also, I love this era of sports cars, because I know you went to this race too, but for me, my first ever race experience was going in the late 80s to watch the Columbus 500 in our hometown of Columbus, Ohio, where they ran these cars. By the way, did you hear the other city I said where they were running? San Antonio. San Antonio. You, like, they, the places, they ran in Des Moines. In the streets of des moines iowa see okay like this, see let's you're do this here, again let's bring some if, of these races yes. back to let's bring sports car races back into cities now portland was a purpose built is a purpose built racetrack, but i'm saying like yeah you go back and look at this era of imsa it's great when you see where they ran some of these tracks there were a lot of street courses and i wish they would do more of that it's really cool when you get a chance to
1: to see like if you have a street race in columbus or cleveland the lakeshore that airport still is has less traffic than it did when they when IndyCar or Cart used to run out at Cleveland. It'd be cool to have a throwback race at an make it an event and you have a company that owns all the bleachers, they can disassemble it and move it around from city to city across the years. I think it'd be great if you look on the calendar like, Oh my gosh, we got we got a chance to go to San Antonio right and do a street race. Or oh my goodness, they're bringing back like just uh, IndyCars doing Nashville street race. Yeah. I'm sorry, there's a lot of people that if they went to Nashville Super Speedway, might be like, we're booking our tickets, we're going down there, we're getting our cowboy hat, yeehaw, let's go to Nashville. But also, too, you are a lot of people like, I would not go to Nashville Super Speedway for an IndyCar race. I wouldn't drive seven hours out of my way to do it. If I lived down there, sure. But I might drive seven hours to go see a a Nashville street race. I've driven on the St. Pete circuit multiple times, just going in and around St. Petersburg. It's really cool. I was just there a few weeks ago and you see from March or April, you see the tracks, you see the turn one, the rubber's still on the race. You yeah. go to Dan Weldon Way, there's a curb that's permanently there. You still see they're like they haven't repainted the streets and there's still cars that have all the tire tracks that are going down into the last part of the circuit. It's, it's cool. And you can just, you can pay 25 cents a park there.
0: I know <laughs> it's, it's like great, so right?
1: street circuits to me have a unique value. Are they the best of racing all the time? No but do they provide something very visceral and cool? Yes, and I think if we're gonna go back to do anything, we need to go back to more street racing across all disciplines.
0: I Yeah, I love this era of IMSA, so thank you for humoring me on this late 80s version of IMSA, and uh, yeah, hopefully you find some enjoyment out of it like I did. Seriously, go back and watch this race, though. It's a lot of fun to see what these cars look like. There was all kinds of you know great names in this race, all kinds of great makes and models, so yeah, go check it out. Yeah. Thanks again so much for listening to this episode. Please give us feedback. And again, don't forget, we are going to put a link up to this race. If you want to watch it, the YouTube link will be available on our Twitter at Stagger Podcast. Same handle on Instagram as well. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Of course, you can also email us contact at staggerpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening to the Stagger Podcast.